In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. George Papadopoulos remembers the moment exactly. The young Trump campaign advisor was meeting with a contact in academia. With the election still six months away, the talk had been of politics and policy. But then it changed. All of a sudden, he's leaning over in a conspiratorial manner dropping what I call the bomb on me regarding hacked emails and how the Russians are in possession of Hillary Clinton's emails. His mind started whirring. And you're just sitting back thinking, what am I supposed to do with this? Why are you telling me? Are you involved in something illegal? And why am I sitting here with you now? In hindsight, Papadopoulos was right to panic. Those few words with Joseph Mifsud a Russian link professor, would set off a chain of events that would become known as the Trump-Russia investigation. Over the years to come, there would be arrests, interrogations, lies and resignations, court hearings, convictions, a battle that went to the heart of the Trump presidency. And where did the conversations take place? Not in a Moscow hotel, or a Washington steakhouse, or some campaign stop-off. It happened at the Anders Hotel by Liverpool Street Station in London. I'm Ben Riley Smith, the Daily Telegraph's US editor. This is Crossfire. My time in Washington has been dominated by one overarching story Donald Trump and allegations of election interference. It underpinned special counsel Robert Mueller's probe into Russia's 2016 meddling and its connection to the Trump campaign. It sits at the heart of the Ukraine scandal, with the president's push to get a political rival investigated, triggering impeachment. And it hangs over 2020, the election year, as Mr Trump strains every sinew to win a second term. To better understand the nature of Trump, his campaigns and his world, I spent the last year looking into an aspect of the Russia saga that remains largely untold. It is a story involving Britain. Time and time again, the threads of the scandal run through the UK. There's the Fleet Street hack turned PR guru who ended up flogging dirt to Trump's son. 
or the ex-MI6 spook, whose claims about Trump-Kremlin links left him fearing assassination, or the posh apartment just by Harrods where the release of explosive Democrat emails was masterminded. There's a Cambridge University don turned FBI informant, and even allegations pushed by the president himself that Her Majesty's intelligence agencies somehow spied on him. What really happened? Why does Britain keep cropping up? And do Trump's claims have any merit? All year, I've been tracking down those directly involved to find out. Some agreed to talk at length for the first time, sharing what they know. Over the next six episodes, we'll unpack it all, chunk by chunk, through the voices of those who were there in the room. I want to lay bare the nature of Trump campaigns, the characters they draw, the pressure they operate under, and the norms they are apparently willing to break. With the election round the corner, it's a story which needs telling. So, back to George Papadopoulos. His name might sound familiar to you. He's one of those people, and there are quite a few of them, who shot into the headlines and instant infamy thanks to the Mueller probe. Papadopoulos' conversations with Russian-linked figures, or more specifically his lies about them to the FBI, would land him in jail. I want to start with how Papadopoulos, aged just 28, began working for the Trump campaign. So George Papadopoulos is not someone you necessarily would have expected to be working on a presidential campaign. This is Amelia Thompson-DeVoe. She covered the Russia scandal for the political website 538 and knows this stuff inside out. He's a former kind of low-level Trump campaign advisor, caught up in the Mueller investigation and ultimately pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI. And when he joined the Trump campaign, he was this young guy who really didn't have a lot of political connections. He'd worked for a while at a conservative think tank and then served very briefly as a foreign policy advisor on Ben Carson's campaign in the 2016 Republican primary. And then he left that campaign and joined the Trump campaign in the sort of late winter, early spring of 2016. Trump announced Papadopoulos and a string of other new foreign policy advisors in March 2016. Counterterrorism expert, uh, Carter Page, PhD, uh, George Papadopoulos. Uh, he's an oil and energy consultant, excellent guy. Uh, Despite the compliment, they had never actually met. Trump was trying very hard to get more people onto his foreign policy team. He listed Papadopoulos among, like, third or fourth among a small group of foreign policy advisors. And and that's even though Papadopoulos really didn't have a lot of actual foreign policy experience. What drew Papadopoulos to Trump in the first place? I got the chance to ask him myself. One clear, crisp day in February last year, I pulled up outside his apartment in Los Angeles, just below the Hollywood sign. It was a surprisingly glamorous setting for the start of an investigation into the British side of this story. Not that I was complaining. Papadopoulos had moved to the West Coast with his wife Simona after completing his two-week prison sentence. But the brief time behind bars was dwarfed by the damage to his life and his reputation 
he wanted to rebuild. He'd been cautious when I first approached, over Twitter direct messaging. But after months of back and forth, he began to open up. When you meet Papadopoulos, he has dark hair, dark eyes and a deep tan. He's also friendly. Far from the keyboard warrior, he acts on social media. Sitting opposite each other in his living room, he explained how while on the Ben Carson campaign, he'd spotted Trump's message was beginning to resonate. I wasn't living in a bubble in Washington. So I would fly to Chicago, I would, you know, fly around the country, just, you know, just move around. And I would understand that what people were uh, talking about in Washington did not necessarily reflect the realities on the ground, and except Trump did. No matter how harsh he was, job security trade, job security trade. He repeated it so many times that it became a mantra that even to this day, people still remember his campaign promises even more so than some of the things he was he's actually doing as a policy maker today. So I thought it was very powerful. I think he's a marketing genius. Um, people uh, misunderestimated him, I think. Um, they misunderestimated the power of TV. Papadopoulos, once on board, was eager to impress. He had been spending a lot of time in Britain, having got his master's from University College London and done some energy consulting there. Papadopoulos set himself a goal. Trump wanted better relations with Russia. He'd said as much on the campaign. Why not arrange a summit with Putin? Soon, an opportunity presented itself. In connection with other work, Papadopoulos was sent to Rome. The purpose was to meet people affiliated with a university there. It was during that trip that he was introduced to Joseph Mifsud. He's a um, mid-50s uh, academic type, diplomat, um, presents well, um, speaks many languages, uh, has purported to have numerous diplomatic contacts around the world. Mifsud, an academic based in Britain, had at first seemed uninterested. But when Papadopoulos mentioned he was working for Trump, things changed. I can't remember exactly what his first words were because, you know, I was in the middle of joining the campaign. I was in a conference. Basically, he was telling me, I'm going to be your middleman. I want to be involved with you. I want to be involved with uh, what you're doing with Russia. This seemed fantastic. Papadopoulos wanted a Trump meeting. Here was a man claiming Russian connections and offering help. Soon they were back in London meeting and sharing emails. Over the weeks that followed, Papadopoulos engaged wholeheartedly. After one get-together, he told his campaign seniors that Putin wanted to meet Trump, possibly in a neutral city. But, Papadopoulos told me, he was also growing suspicious. Mifsud wasn't delivering on his promises, such as making an introduction to the Russian ambassador. So it was with a degree of reluctance that he agreed to meet once again. Mifsud had just been to Russia and wanted to talk. The location was set. A five-star hotel round the corner from Liverpool Street Station. The Anders. To understand what comes next, it's critical to understand the context. It is April 26th, 
2016. A controversy that will upend that year's presidential campaign had yet to happen. The controversy brewing this morning on the eve of the convention, WikiLeaks released thousands of emails from the DNC appearing to show favoritism towards Hillary Clinton. So the big question, could this create chaos reminiscent of Watergate, but worse, more than 1,900 emails released just this weekend? We are talking about a slow leak every day, a new batch. And the Clinton campaign knows this could be a the problem for them democratic every day emails, until election Perpetrated day. by Russia, distributed by WikiLeaks was one of the defining moments in Hillary Clinton's bid to beat Trump. In fact, it was more than a single moment. There were two distinct email hacks, both of which caused mayhem. One was of the Democratic National Committee. It showed the body, which oversaw the party nomination race, had tried to help Clinton and hinder her rival, Bernie Sanders. The other got into the account of John Podesta, Clinton's campaign chairman. It revealed secret speeches, jibes about Clinton from AIDS and candid policy discussions. That one was especially devastating, as Clinton's political director at the time, Amanda Renteria, recalls. So I had two, two feelings on it when it happened. One was like initially just like sort of a little bit frightening to kind of go, wow, we have people watching us. And that felt really unsettling. And then the second piece was, this is when for me, from a political constituency group, elected official standpoint, that I knew how damaging it could be. Largely because these are private conversations you generally have about politics, right? And about how are we gonna navigate this tough issue and how are we gonna navigate that issue? And to the extent that our team, particularly with John, were so open, honest, you know, direct, especially his style is just incredibly direct, that that wasn't great for public consumption. The Podesta emails, drip-fed through daily releases near the end of the campaign, reinforced the perception that Clinton was somehow deceitful or two-faced. That played perfectly into the attack line Trump was running with, crooked Hillary. Was it decisive? We'll never know, but Renteria thinks so. Looking back now, imagine a world where there wasn't the DNC leak and there wasn't the Podesta leak. Do you think there's a chance she would have got over the line? Yeah, I mean, I, I still am very much... Um, I, I come from the camp that she might actually have won um, had there been a fair and free election um, and not all of the Russian interference that we had. But this is the bit you have to remember. None of this had happened yet. When Papadopoulos and Mifsud met that morning over breakfast, this was yet to be. No emails had been released by WikiLeaks. No scandal over the hack had erupted. The public didn't know the Russians already had access. Except, apparently, one man. One man who that morning made his way to the Anders. They met probably at a table quite like the one I'm at right now. White tablecloths in a vast atrium with chandeliers hanging from the ceilings. And there's a huge stained glass window at the very top with light pouring in. What they discussed here would go on eventually, little did they know, to help trigger the Russia investigation into the Trump campaign. 
Do you remember the, the exact words he used? They have thousands of Hillary Clinton's emails. And then you start to panic a bit because you're in a foreign city, a foreign country, and this foreigner is talking to you about something which is likely illegal in the United States. So there are many thoughts going through your head. Many thoughts. And um, that's why I call it the bomb because I had a flush of thoughts going through my head and most of it was actually panic. Um, I was just looking at him thinking, how did you get this information? And what I got was, they told me. They told me. So, no names, no nothing, um, just they told me. So, and... Uh, what did you interpret the, the, the they as when he said Russians, they told me? Russia. I did. I interpreted it as Russia because he had notified me, um, I think via email, uh, a week or so before that he had been, he was going to Russia, and then he'd be coming to see me after that. Here was someone saying they knew of a secret stash of emails about the one person who could stop Donald Trump getting to the White House. Papadopoulos had to decide. Try to get the emails or let the comments slide by. Did you ever say, can we get those emails? No. No, no, of course did, not. Did you think about it? No. No, no. No, that's, and that, that was part of the point I made in the beginning when I talked about this, is that the emotion through my head was panic at that moment. You know, it's, um, how do we go from, I just want a photo op with Trump and Putin so I look good, just like when I introduced Trump to the Egyptian president, which was a spectacular event, um, how do we go from just me using you to do that for me to you trying to drag me into some illegal activity? Can we believe Papadopoulos? Do you? It's difficult to judge. He's a convicted liar after all. Robert Mueller's team of investigators ultimately found no proof that Papadopoulos had passed the message back to the Trump campaign. But we also know something else. For all Papadopoulos' protestations of shock, he never actually notified the FBI. Of course, his account is only half the story. The other belongs to Joseph Mifsud. He's an intriguing character. He's Maltese, yet lived in Britain, setting up in London and holding a teaching post with Stirling University. According to special counsel Miller, Mifsud also had Russian connections. One was to an employee at the group which spearheaded Russia's disinformation campaign online. But Mifsud has gone to ground. Nobody knows where he is now. Nor has the public ever heard him speaking about exactly what happened at the Andes. Until now. The, the issue is this. This was a silly, stupid... <laughs> this is Joseph Mifsud. He does that laugh quite a lot. He was tracked down by my Telegraph colleague Robert Mendick. I don't know the Russian government, I only go for the Valdez. It's believed to be the first time ever that Mifsud has been heard arguing his case. That's all. There's nothing else. There's nothing. Uh, <laughs> it's all academic. There's 
not nothing. I don't know any presidents. I don't know any yeah, prime okay. ministers. I don't know foreign ministers. All I know are people who are working, for example, uh, you know, sometimes they ask me to chair sessions. The recording know. was taken on the day Papadopoulos' charges dropped in October 2017. Mifsud hadn't read them, but seemed aware. The FBI had already interviewed him. During the call, Rob read out bits of the indictment. Here's what Mifsud said of that Anders breakfast. The quality isn't great, but you can just about make it out. In this uh, claim, it says, on or about the April the 26th, 2016, defendant Papadopoulos met the professor for breakfast at a London hotel. Did that take place? Does that, does it, do you recall yes, yes, that? Yes, yes, yes. If I was not breakfast at the London hotel, we met, uh, uh, we met a couple of times in London. Yeah. Because we met at the London Centre of International Law Practice. And we might have went, we went for a coffee or something like that. And that would have been April the 26th? Does that ring a bell or not? Uh, uh, you know, I don't keep track of... <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, quite. And then it says, know. the professor told defendant Papadopoulos, I'm only reading what the FBI yeah. say, so bear that in mind, uh-huh. that on that trip, he, the professor, learned uh-huh. that the Russians had obtained dirt Absolutely. on then-candidate Clinton. <laughs> Absolutely, this is not true. Not true. So you never said to Papadopoulos, we've got dirt. (laughs) And then he says, they... Uh, Why would I say we? I don't even... Listen, just to give you an idea, excuse me. I don't even have, you know, my visits to the Russian Federation are visa by visa, because I don't even have a multiple entry visa to Russia. <laughs> Every time that I, the last visa that I got to Russia was given to me through the uh, Saudis because I, uh, I, I was there for the seminar on, on Yemen, so it has nothing to do with the Russians. Absolutely not true. That was the quote, an outright denial. So, Mifsud says the emails weren't mentioned, but Papadopoulos says they were. Who's right? According to US law enforcement, it's the latter. And there's another bit of critical information which supports that conclusion. It comes from another meeting. It's in London, again. Papadopoulos is there, again. But his guest this time is an Australian, a man called Alexander Downer. Downer once led Australia's Liberal Party and had been the country's foreign minister. By 2016, Downer had stepped back and taken the plum foreign posting of High Commissioner to the UK. When the Trump bandwagon started to roll, the Aussies, like everyone else, were left scrambling for contacts. They saw Papadopoulos' name in the papers and reached out. A venue was picked. The Kensington Wine Rooms. The Kensington Wine Rooms are the other side of London from the Andes Hotel, West London rather than East London, and it has a very different vibe. It's a buzzy wine bar, there are wine bottles along the walls, those refrigerated machines that can serve you by the glass, jazzy music and a wooden floor. George Papadopoulos met Alexander Downer here for what seemed like a pretty straightforward meeting between a campaign aide and a foreign diplomat. But it took a turn when Papadopoulos allegedly mentioned Clinton emails. What happened when the two men gathered? just 10 days after the Mifsud Papadopoulos breakfast, is contested. 
Downer had been largely reluctant to discuss it. He insisted we stay off the record as a condition for meeting. But when I found him in his King's College London office, Downer changed his mind. One of my staff came to me and said, um, would I be interested in meeting this guy? This was, I think, in May 2016. He's a man who has that easy charm that comes from decades as a top-level politician. Propping his feet up on the chair, red socks on display, he took me through what happened. Six o'clock in the evening, I think we met at the Kensington Wine Bar. Um, We were there for an hour, there were three of us. We had a gin and tonic, or possibly two each. I can't remember whether it was one or two. I think that perhaps indicates it may have been two. But um, I can tell you, no one was remotely drunk. He t- we talked a lot about um, what Trump would do in terms of foreign policy. Um, and actually, a lot of what he said has turned out to be accurate. And just towards the end, we had a discussion about what would happen in the uh, race for the Republican nomination. And if Trump got it, what would happen in the general election? And he said that he thought Trump, um, you know, not surprisingly, he was a Trump man. He thought Trump would get the nomination. He thought Trump would win the general election. And he said, uh, and in any case, the Russians might use some material that they have on Clinton uh, in the lead up to the election. That's all he said. It was a throwaway line, but a killer. Papadopoulos said the Russians had something on Clinton. The word email was not used. He definitely didn't say they had Hillary's emails or... Well, they didn't have Hillary's emails. He said material, did he, rather than... Yeah, material is a terrible word. Yeah, material or or information or something. We didn't ask about it. What Downer is saying here is clear. Papadopoulos had let slip. He mentioned what Joseph Mifsud had revealed at the breakfast. When I brought this up with Papadopoulos, he disputed it. But he did so in a way that politicians often do, by saying he doesn't recall it. Papadopoulos went further. He said not only did it not happen, but Downer and in fact even Joseph Mifsud were all trying to set him up. The argument goes something like this. Western intelligence agencies wanted to stop Trump. To stop Trump, they tried to get campaign figures to bite on Russian dirt. It may sound hazy, but a version of that claim is aired constantly in Trump world, including from the president himself. That Western spies, not Russia, were really behind the scandal. With Downer, Papadopoulos also makes a specific claim. Do you really think he was recording you? I believe he was, yes. Why would he do that? I don't know. I don't know. But um, certainly the behaviour he exhibited at that meeting uh, suggested he was spying. And uh, if he was spying, of course, he might have been recording um, a conversation without my knowledge. Well, if that were the case, um, why is he hesitant about whether he mentioned the Russians? We'd have the recording, wouldn't we, with him saying it? But we didn't, um, it's not diplomatic practice to record meetings. Of course, that would be very unprofessional. I certainly didn't do that. His core claim is that somehow you entrapped him to undermine the Trump campaign. Didn't even think about it. I mean, I, I had never heard of him in my whole life 
until this. Uh, never heard of him. I know people called Papadopoulos because I dealt a lot with uh, Greece and Cyprus, a huge amount. But I never heard of George Papadopoulos from America, ever. You think the Australian government was really focused on the Republican Party nomination? I mean, the Australian it couldn't have been. The Australian government had a billion things to do at the time, which had nothing to do with the Republican Party or its nomination. We have an embassy in Washington, though, um, and it would have been really focused on all those issues. Mm. But I mean, why would they use the High Commission in London? When you step back for a moment, the thing that really jumps out is the speed of all of this. The whole of what I've described happened in just a few weeks, between March, when Papadopoulos joined the campaign, and May, when he meets Downer. In that time, a figure with Russian links made contact, befriended him, offered connections, then whispered in his ear. That says something, I think, about the nature of Russian meddling. Approaches are cloaked, and made from every angle. We'll see a lot more of that in this podcast. But it says something too about the campaign itself, of the little knowns Trump had to reach for to gain foreign policy credibility, of the inexperience and eagerness some displayed. Papadopoulos, remember, was 28. He'd spent almost no time on campaigns. Yet here he was, trying to pull off a summit between Russia's leader and a presidential hopeful. That is not normal, and he was out of his depth. What he had set off, however, was huge. Hacked emails, and how the Russians are in possession of Hillary Clinton's emails. For when those democratic emails were finally published, two months later, the significance dawned on Alexander Downer. Alarmed, he urgently reached out to the US Embassy in London to let them know what Papadopoulos had said how he, a Trump campaign figure, had known in advance that the Russians had Clinton dirt. Within hours, the message was picked up some 3,000 miles away in Washington at the headquarters of the FBI. They'd been watching with growing alarm at signs of potential Russian election meddling. Now, with hard evidence of Papadopoulos' comments, it was time to act. Going in to work on a Sunday, a senior agent pulled up a new case form on a computer and started typing. He wrote a summary of what was known. He picked the designation, counter-espionage. He noted the 11-digit number needed for tracking. And then he paused. The investigation needed a name. Thinking of the political storm to come, he wrote two words, crossfire, hurricane. The Russia investigation had begun. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Crossfire from The Telegraph. Subscribe to this feed to make sure you don't miss it. And in the meantime, you can read more about this story, including details that we just couldn't fit in, at telegraph.co.uk forward slash crossfire. Next week on Crossfire. Do you remember the moment the Steele dossier dropped? 
I think it's a disgrace that information would be let out. Uh, it's all fake news. It's phony stuff. These are extremely serious claims to have lodged against the President of the United States. This is dangerous. This is really dangerous. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.